Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Mind Yourself podcast in association with Motus Learning. So um, myself and Christy are back um, to kind of talk about and continue our theme around technology and mental health. And I think, um, Christy, what's interesting was, so I was reading a study recently um, from the Pew Institute in the United States, which is a big research center, um, regarding uh, parenting and what parents feel about kids' technology usage. And one of the big um, kind of scary statistics I came across was that uh, 71% of parents had little to no confidence in managing their kids' um, technology usage and also understanding how that technology usage um, impacts their mental health. And so I think today, and you know, we, we've talked about this kind of briefly in the past, but going into detail on it today, I think it'd be nice to kind of dig into this topic of technology and how parents can better manage and understand how to support their kids in this new digital environment. So, Christy, how do you want to start this? Okay, um, so I suppose a good place to start is with some statistics. And I'm taking these from the Irish My World survey. Um, so this was a survey done by Dr. Dooley and Dr. Fitzgerald in UCD, University College Dublin. And basically what they did is they measured loads of variables among Irish secondary students. Um, and lots of these variables were related to social media. There were over 10,000 students. Um, so I'm just going to basically feed back the social media statistics. So basically what they found after this study, which was done in 2019, was that over 96% of adolescents use social media, which I suppose isn't really surprising. Of those who reported to have a social media profile, 96% use Snapchat, 90% Instagram, 54% Facebook, 28% Twitter, and 4% had a dating app. 34% spent more than three hours online per day. 29% spent two to three hours online a day. 25% spent one to two hours online a day. And 12% spent less than an hour a day. And perhaps, well, unsurprisingly to me, females were more likely to report being online for more than three hours per day and males were more likely to report being online for less than um, an hour a day. And unsurprisingly, again, I think uh, the older age groups were more likely to spend more time online. So uh, I know that was lots of numbers on um, any opinions on that. I would be, uh, what I would be very curious about is how COVID has impacted our social media habits, given that we've been um stuck indoors probably using social media more and i'm what i would be curious about is how um whether that changed is permanent you know the way so when we get out of covid will we still have some level of a routine of using social media and our online platforms maybe more maybe you know in a different way i would assume it went up during covid um that wouldn't really surprise me particularly with teens because they obviously want more to do and they have even less to do so but do you think that'll change like will that leave a lasting change for how um teens will socialize because they've gotten so used to doing it online will they always be online that's what i'm curious about yeah um you know i'm not one now to make speculation i suppose you would have to um you'd have to do the research to find out um for me it's good it's very good study though yeah for me personally um I don't think I don't think any of that was really surprising. Um, as people get older, they they have more to do online, so they spend more time. I think that makes sense. Um, males were more likely to have, uh, in the same survey, males were found to have more extracurricular activities such as sports. So I think that might explain why they spend less time on social media. And finally, with the ninety six percent use in social media, my only surprise there is that it's actually not more. Um. I'm I'm fascinated about that four percent. What the nineties? Who are the four percent? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always going to be older people, and there's always going to be people who are, you know, sorry that are just, you know, not on it. But four percent does sound like a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. I would have thought it was more like ninety nine, and there was like a one percent. Um, and then so regarding profile privacy, twelve percent of adolescents reported having their social media profile public. Eighteen percent reported having their profile set to partially private. And 67% reported that their profile was set to private. And then there was... Only 67. Well, 
I personally thought that was quite positive, to be honest. Um, and particularly because of this last statistic, only 3% reported that they didn't know if it was public or private. So I think what's kind of reassuring there is that adolescents have an awareness of um, the difference between having their profile public or private. Like, I think that's quite reassuring. So the ones who are putting a public are aware that it's on public. It's, I'd say if you had done this, 10 years ago, it would have been a situation where the majority wouldn't have known if their profile was on public or private because they didn't really know the difference, but they seem to have more digital liter- literacy now, which I think is quite reassuring. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, do you know, and maybe that's a good thing, but I think when you create an Instagram um, page, it defaults to private, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Um, and I suppose Definitely. that's something that I don't know if people actively are aware about but there is an extra step if they didn't want to private to have to go and unprivate it which i think is enough to sort of put people off or prevent people from doing it in most cases you know rather than the other way around yeah. that they had to actively go like we've always said in the older days with facebook and stuff people had to go in and tick to certain privacy things and it was automatically a little bit loose but i think they've changed that model and with instagram it seems to be a bit more private first and it means then the people automatically are a little bit safer Hmm. um another thing as well from it is the older participants so like the ones in the senior cycle so like leaving cert students or the equivalent of a levels they were more likely to report setting their profile to public as opposed to private um so it's more likely among older ones than younger which again i think is positive well that's bad positive i wonder why though i wonder what the reasons are is it to do with you know you know, it might career reasons and stuff. It's a little bit, you know, that people can expose themselves a little bit more. Want to have an online presence. I, I, I would, uh, I would assume, or I would hypothesize that it's because the education around this is better. I think adolescents have more of an awareness than probably they're given credit for. Um, and then that actually brings us onto what are adolescents doing online. So, sixty-three percent reported that they never meet people online for social interaction. That they have not met in real life, even though males were more likely to report that they will meet people online occasionally. Um, when asked about being sent, this is what I found the most important part of the finding. When asked about being sent mean messages, 60% reported that they never experienced this, and 32% reported that it happened once to them, while only 70% reported being sent mean messages occasionally. And this is the important point. 39% of adolescents report that they had been bullied. But of that 39%, only 3% of the sample stated that the bullying was online. So it's there, but it's not as bad as we first thought. And this is really, really important. I want to emphasize this because this is what the parents are constantly questioning us about, is how can we stop cyberbullying? But what the research is showing is that cyberbullying isn't as big a problem as we thought. And the reason why that is, is because I think adolescents are smarter than we think they are. That they basically know how to monitor this. And this ties in with what we're going to be talking about in later episodes about cancel culture and people being attacked for being mean online. Like, I don't think, obviously there's still going to be trolls, but I don't think it's as common as people think it is. Um... This is why research is so much better than what the media might be telling us, that cyberbullying is this major problem. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, the hot topic whenever you talk about um, mental health online and cyber safety, it's always cyberbullying. But it's interesting how actually in the numbers, how little of an issue it is. And I think you're right about the not giving younger people enough credit. I mean, arguably, if it was a level of expertise, younger people are far more um experienced and clever when it comes to online usage than probably their parents and if you were to pick an online expert it's probably easier to find an online expert in a younger cohort than it is in an older cohort so ultimately parents and adults try to take the high road and say well we're more experienced in life so we know it better but probably the kids are a little bit more experienced because they go through it and use it day to day in day out and ultimately are you know bigger experts at it than their parents and their um seniors yeah um and so just to introduce this topic um i want to give the um 
warning that I'm going to be quite critical of technology and social media in relation to its effect on mental health. But the reason why I am doing this and the reason why we're having this conversation is so that I can highlight the dangers of technology to parents and teachers because there are still dangers there. And I do want to also highlight that the same study found that adolescents who reported spending more than three hours online were more likely to have very severe depression and anxiety and also so lower self-esteem and body esteem. So there are dangers there. But what I'm pointing out is it's not as dangerous as the media is portraying it to be. And also remember that your children and your students have agency in this conversation and they're probably more aware of it than you are. So these conversations are going to be more tied about behind trying to educate you, the individual, about it as opposed to you needing to educate your child they might know everything but they probably know more than you on this topic which is a strange situation but um that's the way it is yeah interesting it's i think it is quite a disarming scenario yeah um i think it's important to note um as you're probably aware as well this is a very very common topic that comes up in our parent webinars it's generally parents technology is the immediate go-to because it's kind of the unknown it's something they didn't grow up with so they often think um, that is the reason why mental health issues among children and adolescents is growing. Um, and it goes back to what we spoke about in the last podcast. You have this thing, technology, that is growing so fast that we are struggling to regulate it. And then it seems to be the most popular among adolescents. And remember, adolescents are the ones that are going through puberty. They have social pressures from everywhere. They're trying to find their identity. And that in itself is the issue. We want adolescents to explore and to make mistakes. That's the time to do it. But the problem is when it's online, the mistakes can be extremely dangerous and the mistakes don't go away. They're permanently there once it goes online. Mm. And that's the danger. And I suppose there's a lot of avenues I can go with this, but I am going to start with a random question. Okay. Um, why do you think people enjoyed the game? Do you remember the game The Sims? Yeah. Right. So The Sims is something that I have always found very, very strange. This is just a personal perspective for me. Okay, People okay. used to go on, play um, a virtual version of a person and like spend life, hours like and hours on it. So why do you think people enjoyed the game so much? Uh, is because, well, I mean, my thing, you know, I do remember playing it, I think, maybe briefly. I don't think I was that into it. I had friends who played it. Um, I'm probably more in your boat. I never really got on board with it. But I, I think it was more, you know, you could create your ideal world. Yes. So you could buy the things you wanted, create the house you wanted, you know, get the pet you wanted. I think that was the idea that you could, you had complete control to craft your own world Um, was probably the appeal. Yes. And... The problem with that is people were putting so much hours then into creating their ideal world or their ideal house, their ideal partner, their ideal living that they weren't taking care of themselves or like they might neglect their own living. And then do you see where I'm going with this in relation to social media? Social media then allows uh, people to create or actually when I say technology, social media is generally what I'm referring to, but this applies to gaming as well. Um, but particularly social media allows you to create an ideal version of yourself. And this goes back to the research um, or the theories of um, Carl Rogers, who is this big, big name in psychology. And he basically differentiated between the ideal self um, is you've probably heard of self-actualization before. Yeah. So you basically have to create goals. You have to create an ideal self um, and you have to compare it against your actual self, what you are in real life. And the difference between that ideal self and that actual self, that's the growth in between. But the problem with social media now is people are creating an ideal self and they're tr permanently trying to live in this cyber world where they're constantly their ideal self. So much so that they're neglecting their actual self. And rather than you minimizing that gap, it's becoming bigger and bigger. And then mm -hmm. the issue then is that this can then lead to mental health issues. Um, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so... You know, just very quickly, and I, I don't want to stop you in your flow, but so just kind of to give it a bit of context. So I know you said that, you know, the biggest thing is that parents are 
you know, the biggest concern, the reason parents are so concerned, like we said at the start, is because this is a new space, is a new thing that they don't fully understand. And that's why they think it's the root cause to a lot of what their kids um, mm. are suffering from mentally. And I'm assuming that every generation, um, you know, a- if you look at any generation gap, so any jump from one generation to the next, there's always new things, new pressures, new, you know, things that kids are interested in that I'm sure if you ask the previous generation, they point to as the all the the, the root cause of all the faults in that generation. So if you ask your grandparents, they probably had yeah, of course. what our parents. But are you are you saying that, you know, psychologically and from research that technology is a completely new beast. It's it isn't just the new thing. It also there's a lot of things that are part of it that um are emphasizing or kind of, you know, in you know, further um causing intense mental health issues more so than, you know, other differences that go generation to generation. Yeah, so we discussed this in the first uh, podcast that we did together in this season in that, like, I'm sounding like I'm extremely anti-technology and, and I'm not. Um, I The first thing I always say when somebody blames technology is I always say it's, it's just not that simple. It's not one thing that's leading to mental health issues increasing. Um, but I am saying that technology has the ability to play the role. And of course, there's loads of benefits um, for technology as well and, and social media. Like people are able to connect like never like um, never before. But it's just so much bigger than any other change that previous generations have experienced. Like um, there's this principle known as um, I think it's called Dunbar's rule. Um, this researcher known as Dunbar basically came up with this uh, extremely complicated algorithm to explain that we should only ever have contact with 150 people. This goes back to like evolutionary, um, our evolution and like growing up with tribes, but it, we should never exceed 150 people because we just, you can't function. And that applies to anything. It, apply, it applies to a company, for example, it applies to a community, a neighborhood, whatever. But it should never be over uh, too much more than 150. But now with social media, you see um, young people, and they could have thousands and thousands of friends. You have followers who have, te- or you have influencers who have thousands and thousands of followers, millions. And, yeah, even millions, and like those type of numbers we've never experienced before, and like. This is why I'm quite interested, but slightly scared of this influencer period. And I know we're going to talk about this in another podcast, but like they they don't know what's right and what's wrong and what they're doing. They're influencing so many people and, you know, there's nobody before them to tell them what to do. It's just um, it's completely new and uh, unknown ground, which I think will be interesting. We'll find out probably in the next decade um, what impact that has on society. Um, but going back to your point of is am i right in saying (laughs) the question was is technology the main thing to blame was that your question yeah yeah i think it was just that i was like you know that and you answered it in the case that you know technology has been rapidly growing so fast um is the reason why it's probably from a psychology perspective and us in the mental health field are maybe, you know, as we've said, we're not anti-technology, but we're trying to decipher it more aggressively than ever before because it is the rapid change that is the big thing. It's not that other generations haven't gone through big changes that their previous generation didn't understand, which I'm sure caused stress in different scenarios, but it's just the fact that this has changed so rapidly and still is changing so rapidly that it requires a little bit more, you know, discussion, research, investment into kind of figuring it out then you know you know more previously and that's probably why we're putting a bigger lens on it just because it is changing and that's what i just wanted to clarify that we're not saying that this is it's new that one generation to the next has a very different life experience to their parents and grandparents but it is changing rapidly that it does involve a more priority there's also the big big difference as well is that you have this um beast that we've discussed that is addictive like there's no arguing that it's extremely extremely addictive it gives you access Mm. to so many more things than anything else before and the big big difference in this is that as i mentioned already the appeal is directly to children yeah there you know like the social media companies say like you have to be over 12 but who's monitoring that like and who's Mm. stopping uh an eight or a nine year old basically 
going on and saying they're 12 or 13. Like, and another thing that's changing, and this is it's changing so rapidly we're not even aware. What age were you when you went on social media? I was in primary school. I was, th- no, I wasn't in primary school. Oh, no, I probably was. If I think back to Bebo days, so I probably would have been, you know, tw- 11 or 12, maybe. Yeah, like that. Fifth I'd class say, or sixth class, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but that has rapidly gone down as well. Like I'd say the average nowadays is seven or eight. Um, yeah. And that's something that's even changed in the space of a few years. Like, like influencers on TikTok could be six, seven, eight yeah. influencers with millions of followers. Yeah. And um, now I'm sure parents help them set up the account. But I mean, you're talking about, you know, famous people online who are, you know, barely above kind of toddler age um, who have millions of people watching videos of them all the time. Yeah. And then that brings up the conversation because as, as we've stated in the first podcast, we're not telling like parents don't use technology, ban your child from technology because that's not going to work because the problem is when you ban a child from technology, you're excluding them from a big part of young people's lives nowadays. Mm. But then this brings up the topic and this is something that we're sort of getting a grasp on, but still struggling is privacy. Um, yeah. Okay. Like there, like, I, I don't understand. I don't know if I'd like to imagine social media companies are doing it now, but I don't understand why when somebody sets up a page, why there is the option to keep their page private or not private. Yeah. Like why, why, why do you think that is? Well, because I think from a social media, like if you're a business, I mean, their business is, you know, lots of interconnections means more data points, means more interactions, which means more insights, which allows them to target ads and target marketing and target certain things they want to push to people, which is how they make their money. So, I mean, if you have your, your account of private, you probably just stay to your friends, which is not hard to probably, you know, decipher if you looked at a small subset of people with their friends as to what your interests are. But it doesn't give them a more fuller picture as to the type of individual you are, because obviously all of us are boxed into personas, I'm assuming, from a marketing perspective for them to target us with ads. And then, but, but that's, that's the issue in that with these social media companies like... You know, in a way, it's fine if they um, take advantage of people over the age of, let's say, 18, because people basically have the ability to think for themselves. But surely a big issue and surely something that's not being pushed enough is how can these social media companies exploit children? That's that's an issue. And I suppose that's the problem as well. Like, I mean, if you turned around to us, the problem is the only commercial model, and I'm going to play devil's advocate here, but the only commercial model for a social media company or for a technology company, okay, we'll say social media because technology is a broader one if you're talking about apps and things like that. But from a social media perspective, us as consumers have demanded these technologies free of charge. And we won't, we don't take an interest in things that cost. It's even comes down to apps. Apps used to have to pay for upfront. Now it's freemium models and 90% of the features. And if you want the really nice features, it's pay extra. So the only commercial model for a lot of these companies is marketing. It's pushing ads. There's no other way of making money. You know, if for example, Facebook turned around and put a certain, you know, entry fee, a subscription on just to use their platform. Um, and then made it, you know, as you said, mandatory to have a private account and you'd only really add the people you're interested in. And maybe you would follow, you know, maybe it was a certain thing where if a celebrity or someone of who has general, um, what's the word, general public acclaim, you know, can, you know, request making their account public, which then people can actually access. But the thing is, no one would use the platforms if Instagram, TikTok and all started to pay for it. And then on the flip side, you probably have a lot of people who benefited from the freedom to have a public account and build up a following and now make lots of money as an influencer. Turn around and go, well, if that model didn't exist, I would, um, wouldn't be the multimillionaire I am today. So there's also obviously the social media companies, but then there's a lot of general public people who make a whole lot of money from this free model who and allow them to build up these crazy followings and then market become a marketing agency themselves. And I think that's the problem. That's the commercial model, which just further and further demands larger and larger numbers of people interacting and followers and all this. You know, we've never, you know, because there's no kind of paywall, um, there's no other way to make money. Yeah. But then this goes back to the issue is that 
The problem then, though, it goes back to the idea that the issue is that, yes, that's fine to target adults, but for children, Mm. they need to be monitored. Like, it's in the law for everything else that they need to be monitored. And this goes back to then the research you mentioned at the start. The parents are now concerned that they can't uh, manage technology in their child's life. And that's the problem there, that they don't, like... It's something that's new to them, um, not just technology in general, but the fact that their children are specifically being targeted. Um, question, did you turn off your privacy when you first set up social media? No. Me neither. Why do you so, think that is? Which means so you're saying turn off as in make it public. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, I suppose at the time... Maybe, and I think, I know, I don't want to sound like, oh, we're, you know, because we were sort of the ones who transitioned from non-social media to social media, we were more aware, you know, the one thing I do remember is making my Facebook account with a friend of mine, and we were probably both 11, maybe 12, you know, and we made these Facebook accounts, and there was no parent involved, I don't think it was very complicated, you just needed an email address and a password, so there was no... um. You know, there was no kind of, you know, criteria as to how to get access. Um, I don't know. I never actively searched out. I'm assuming the privacy features were ticked automatically on Facebook, but I don't know. I've never played around with the privacy on it. So to be honest, I've never touched it. They they weren't, though. So basically you're and I'm not trying to scare you or anything. No, no. Yeah, no. But like this is fairly well known that basically privacy was the big long terms and conditions thing that nobody read. And it basically was like we uh, your page will be open to anybody. So you had to actively go on and turn it off. And then this goes back to what we talked about in the first podcast again, is that education is the key here. I think Mm. it is known now and it's something. But now there's a new um, barrier in that children today now are actively leaving their privacy off because they want people to see them because they basically want attention so because yeah. if they can get that attention like i uh, the scariest part of our of our workshop undoubtedly is we do this topic where we get the children to talk about what do they want to do when they're older it's just this brief activity and when we go around to the children undoubtedly i would say 50 percent of children i would actually go as far as saying that um that we've asked will always say an influencer or a um mm. You know, like like a YouTuber or an influencer, mm. like it's the most sought after career I would say at the moment yeah. because that's all they're exposed to. They're constantly, constantly watching it, and as a result, they're like, "I want to do that" because they haven't yeah. been exposed to other aspects of life or other possible jobs. And I think what's interesting is like what people forget is you know, and I think that the problem with the term influencer as well is now it's become a catch-all. So, you know. Brad Pitt, and I don't mean kind of from a job perspective, but when we do a catch-all of it, who are influencers online, it catches in, we've said, you know, people who actually do have, you know, you know, maybe actually genuine kind of um, research background in what they're saying, be it fitness people and stuff like that, but they might have 10 million followers, and but they are thrown into that bucket with people who have no background in what they're talking about. Again, celebrities, we forget about who were the influencers before social media existed you know you could say jennifer anson brad pitt all these famous celebrities but you forget that they built their following from performing you know on screen on stage that kind of thing their following is generated separately again you can argue that there are lots of youtubers who do genuine good quality content that's educational that you can learn from and then you could say okay fair enough their following has grown but then you do get a lot of people who I would say there is a, probably a class of influencer who do maybe pranks or kind of more that kind of thing. Um, and maybe this is me just being kind of, you know, a, a grumpy sod. But there's a lot of that kind of category of influencer that are what they call clout chasing or, you know, ch- you know, chasing for like what's the big, biggest likes and things like that. And I've seen it actually happen. One person I always find interesting is uh, Julius Dean, that magician. Um, I don't know if you heard of him, but he, I think he's the most followed account on Facebook. 
And he actually is, you know, he's quite young. He's probably late 20s. And he was like, you know, a, one of the first magicians to really take advantage of social media to build up his brand, build up his following. And initially it was quite cool. I used to follow him because like magic's kind of cool. And I used to remember Dynamo, the magician on BBC or whatever channel that was on when he did his documentary. And it was kind of like that kind of magic that... um um face-to-face outdoor kind of exhibition magic um rather than on stage kind of stuff but it was he was kind of cool but what he's kind of in his recent time is he's built his following and realized probably the commercial value and being the most followed and most watched videos on facebook and facebook's his big one which is interesting because he really pushes all his business through facebook and has built billions and billions of views on facebook not so much instagram so it or youtube which is an interesting one but he now has gone into that kind of become more of a prank um content creator and also they're what you know for all intents and purposes if you watch them fake pranks that are obviously set up and the person who's being pranked it, it you know they're sh- they're crap and the, if you look at the comments now a lot of them are people saying i can't believe he's fallen so far that now it's not even actually about the magic which is what he learned about a child so his initial videos are always talking about how his granddad taught magic and you know he's showing videos of him as a kid learning all these tricks but he's completely moved away from what made him famous to just chasing what gets likes which are these kind of you know okay well edited but like poorly scripted and not very interesting videos that if you watch one or two you go this is all just fake for likes and probably the people liking it are young kids who probably maybe believe it who don't see through the kind of you know the how fake it actually is and but he it for him it makes commercial sense and that's what he does and he lives out in mexico and he lives out in dubai and all that but he's gone so far away from what actually made him famous you're kind of going well you know he has no substance anymore and that's yeah. one i always remember who's kind of been a you know a victim of this kind of chasing the numbers chasing the likes but like going back to what we were talking about earlier then you just take a step back from that but when he turns off the camera then like so that's his cyber self that yeah. might be getting all the likes and all the followers or whatever but you take a step back then when they turn that off then like he's focused so much on his cyber self like trying to create a following trying to create a name trying to get likes that you have to question then like and and i i don't know like i don't know this mm. guy maybe he is um his like actual self is perfect and happy and whatever. And I know you need money to survive and stuff, but it's just like, um, people are like, like what we talked about in the first podcast, you, when you go online, people aren't aware, but it, it is a different place. It's not, you're not sitting on your couch, for example, you're going into the app or you're going into social media. It's like you said, called it an environment. It's a different environment. Exactly. It's a different environment. So if you're spending all of that time in that environment, then you're not taking time in your real environment, your reality. And it's what we talked about as well in in relation to virtual reality. When people go put a virtual reality headset on and can live a perfect world, why would they bother come back? Um, well, the reason why they should come back is because they need to eat, they need to take care of themselves and they need to live in the real world. Um, and that's really, really important. And I, I think uh, the education piece, I think, is important as well, because I think the other thing is when you say YouTuber influencers and kids want to dream of being that. And I think a lot of those people class themselves as content creators is the term. Yeah. And what I find, um, you know, and kids go, oh, I want to be a content creator. I want to be a content creator, you know, in the workshops and stuff. They'll say that to us. And oftentimes I'm like, you know, the problem is it's not, you know, content creators sound so mechanical and it is so just, you know, mechanical, bump out videos, photos, reels, TikToks, whatever it is to get likes. But what people should be more focused on is, you know, what is the content those people are creating? You know, are they creating that? Because there are content creators, I suppose, who are providing good content, but then they shouldn't be classed as content creators, just should be classed as, you know, an educator in a certain field or something. And I think that problem with that content creator term is it totally undermines the actual value in the content and just puts all the emphasis in this creating content for the sake of it. And we've had these arguments about Gary Vee and people like that who say it's all about just pushing out the content and the the quality of it is maybe not, you know, as important. But, you know, I think that's a problem because I think now you're but, seeing people... But th- this is the message we should be giving children then as well is that, like, content creation, it's not like you, you don't stick your nose up at that. that. That's great, like, but you need to find exactly like what you're saying, what you're passionate about create content about that mm. do you know that that opens up jobs in relation to like advertising or marketing or things like that but the problem is 
these people aren't differentiating between content creation, creating what they're passionate about, what they're interested about, and what they still need to understand, and being famous. <laughs> and this and this isn't this isn't an issue that's new. This has been with us forever. Like, and it's so funny. Like, you grow up constantly being told like you don't want to be famous, and we see it. Like, we see basically these famous people having absolute meltdowns, um, very regularly, and. But yet, children still want this fame, and I, I don't know what that is. Like, it's just like that's not technology. That technology has just basically increased the chances of you getting it, but it's still extremely, extremely difficult. And reduced, almost reduced the barriers to entry, or at least the reduce the appearance of barriers to entry. So people now assume that it's oh anyone, and I suppose in one sense it's fantastic, as in, and that's probably a positive of social media and technology. It's given everyone a more accessible platform to spread valuable content and actually do you know provide interesting education and make education more ubiquitous. But it also kind of I suppose, as you said, creates the impression of no barriers to entry to become famous all i have to do is start making videos online and yeah. i'll become a famous person and i think that's the problem is the education part of the, that almost appearance of no barrier and then um there's this argument like i've heard people saying oh like for example on tiktok you know like people now today um there's so many young people doing dances on tiktok and um that's such a great thing um which from the exercise perspective yes it's good but you, you make the assumption again that basically however somebody acts in the cyber world is how they act in the real world. So, for example, you see these young people doing all these TikTok dances and you're like, oh, they must be really extroverted and really confident in themselves. But then you see them day to day in real life and they're a completely different person. And yeah. this goes back again to this ideal self versus this actual self, that there's becoming too much of a gap there that we really, really need to minimize. Um. But going back to the privacy thing, so it's kind of this danger, and this is what I want to highlight to parents in that. Have the conversation with your child about the privacy thing. They might not say it directly, but the reason why they want to leave their privacy off, they don't want to keep their page private, is because they want to be an influencer or a content creator. They want more people to be aware of what they're doing. But there's a danger to that, of course. And we, we do know these dangers. Like, for example, like if you if anybody can view you, you could be approached by sexual predators. Um, Like you can attract anybody. And that's an issue. Like it's the equivalent of like letting your child out on the street in, let's say, New York or Amsterdam or any big city in the middle of the night. They can basically yeah. be approached by anybody. And you think, oh, it's virtual, it's fine, but it's not because this virtual can then obviously intersect with real life and that's when the dangers can happen. Um, so that would be my first piece of advice of basically have the conversation about are you keeping your page private and why are you keeping your page private? But here's the other thing. You know, maybe some parents don't know how to even make the page private or even know where to start. So, I mean, the, I think this is the thing, the almost disarming fee feeling that parents have and the fact that they genuinely, social media and technology is one of those few areas where they feel outsmarted. You know, a parent can feel outsmarted by their eight-year-old and they genuinely feel like the kid could, you know, knows about this far more than I do and probably can be the parent, you know, the kid could easily manipulate the parent into thinking it's in private and all those things. So I think there's a big part of it that parents need to go and spend the time to figure it out and work out, okay, across different platforms around how do you do it? What do you do? Because, and, and they shouldn't be removing that responsibility because as you said, it's parents go, oh, I feel disarmed because my kid seems to know more about this space than I do. Well, then go read about it. You know what I mean? Learn about it. Figure then it out. Then I... I do, I do want to say, though, um, to defend the parents as well, because it is a lot. But th this then goes to the responsibility of the social media companies as well. Mm. Like, again, I'm not sure if this is the case. I really hope it is. But I personally think, and I don't understand why they wouldn't do it, that when a child, when so anybody under the age of 18 sets up an account, and actually, to be honest, it should be anybody, really. Actually, everybody yeah. who sets up yeah. an account, their page should automatically be put on private. Because I mm. do not understand the benefit. And there should be more... And I don't know. I mean, when I set up my Facebook account or with all that, and obviously the Instagram account was from the Facebook account, so I didn't even have to properly set that up. I don't know what the barriers to entry now are. And are there more, you know, 
You know the way, like, if you set up a bank, you know, the great thing is you don't go into a bank anymore to set up a bank account. You can do it all online, but they require, like, you know, a passport, something else, something else. Yeah, right, a, a number of pieces of documentation. Like, what's to stop, firstly, um, requiring certain, you know, documentation to prove the person is a person and also prove the person is a certain age? And then if they are under a certain age, the parent also has to provide some documentation of themselves so the parent is then responsible for the usage of that account so that if there is issues the parent can be held accountable for that because it's their responsibility alongside the social media company to protect it and that could be something the social media companies could insist on firstly a number of proof of who you are documents or whatever and then a parent to be assigned alongside the kid on a certain account but then kids don't want that either so but it's not only that it's the um like i i have come across this being advised and the social media company's response is you don't understand how many people are setting up accounts on a daily basis that like it's impossible we, yeah. we, we can't monitor it essentially True. um but on that topic as well um i think another issue that i've come across that hasn't been addressed either is um the majority of school policies about social media and phones and home policies are not the same. They're not on the same page. And I really, really think these need to be more consistent because oh, as wait. I said, um, you might have a school that have, n and many schools don't have any restrictions on like you are, or you're not allowed on social media. And then what happens is you have one parent who basically doesn't know anything about it. So they just don't get involved. So their child is on it from a young age. And you have another parent who might be really strict and tell their child you're not allowed on it. Uh, you're not allowed on social media. And so what you're doing is you're excluding that child. That child is coming into mm. school. All of their friends is talking about, oh, did you see that TikTok? And your child is being excluded. So that's that doesn't work. That whole trying to ban it um, or trying to be overly strict. But where I do think things could improve is if the school had a policy basically making an agreement with parents that children are allowed on uh, social media maybe for an hour uh, an, an evening or like they're not allowed on it before they come to school and if there's consistency between the home and the school and everyone's in agreement then there's nobody being excluded but also the negative effects of technology are less impacting um of course it's not about time but still limiting time on social media i think mm. because another thing that people but haven't the, and are you talking about primary or secondary schools i would honestly say both and like i know this like one hour for example is arbitrary but it's just basically having that restriction another big big issue that i think is that it's not so much the dangers of people being on or children being on social media but i also think there's a big danger in children aren't doing other stuff children are going home and they're going on their phones or their they xboxes hobbies, like. all day that they don't have hobbies they don't have extracurricular activities or sports or social or basically just general socializing as much mm. um and then you have the argument of course that and i understand that that like children so today socialize by social media but they can mm. socialize by social media or by let's say gaming or playing, playing call of duty but they can also socialize in person as well so it's yeah. not just that you can have one or the other. You should be able to have both. Um, and I think that's really, really important to emphasize. So um, whenever we're asked in schools or whenever I'm personally asked about um, how do we manage technology, I think a very, very clear policy between the school, the teachers, the principal and the parents need to be needs to be drawn up. So there's the consistency. Um, I think but see... I like the idea and I think, you know, certainly for primary schools it's probably achievable. My concern would be that when you're relying on parents to implement this and we know that, you know, parents, different parents, you know, have different priorities or have different levels of control maybe over their kids. Secondary school, I think, becomes more complicated, one, because teachers probably have less touch points with parents, for one. Um, and second, you have more kids to manage and you're also, and we talk about it all the time, where when kids go into their teenage years, they become far more reliant on acceptance from their peers rather than acceptance from their parents. So being told by their parents to do something, you know, they will naturally rebel against that or, you know, they'll naturally try and push against that. So it's difficult age to start restricting, which is why, you know, one of the big things I always found is, and if remembering in school, you were in those 
SPHE class, which was a pointless subject, which some unfortunate teacher was given the job of doing. Um, and they never knew how to fill the time. It was like, ugh, let's, we've covered one page in our book. I mean, there's probably 15 pages to cover across the year. We'll take it very slowly. And it was a wasted time, whereas we've always spoken about it. It's such a wasted opportunity for schools to be more proactive with the certain extracurricular things to discuss, be it you know, sexual health, be it social media and social media use. But I mean, that's a perfect opportunity to start arranging more social media education activities. And it, it has to be done, as we've said, and all these things have to be done by young people. The teacher doing it is never going to work because it's the kids see the teacher as separate. You have someone coming in who is more closer to the kid's age. And I think this is more relevant to secondary school because this is the difficult age. But you have someone coming in who's younger, who is being able to engage with the children on a little bit more on their level and also is probably more likely to be an active social media user um, to help educate them, I think, is a little bit better. And something like that has to be done. I think, you know, there's too much of this kind of like, oh, teachers going, the you know, teachers going, oh, we don't know what to do. And it is unfortunate. It's, 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 it comes back to this teach the teacher question all the time. But we have the opportunity to use a, a subject that is just wasted time, in my opinion, for actually those things that people are concerned about and get external people in if you have to or get specialists to come in and do it. It doesn't have to be the teachers, but it's an hour a week that you could be engaging with these kids because I think I think your 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 reasoning around primary school definitely makes sense and I think schools and parents need to be on board across the board anyway from a policy perspective because we all use it in both school and home. And the scary thing is, you know, even my brother's telling me that you know, they have access to the public Wi-Fi in the school. I mean, when we were in when we were in school, your phone stopped being connected to any form of network or Wi-Fi or anything the minute you crossed the door of the school. But now because they use their laptops and phones to do different things in class, they actually have access to them. So they're Snapchatting, doing these things during class sometimes. Not saying that's yeah. right, but saying they're on it. So there has to be a consistent policy. But um, right. they need to figure out how to build in education, I think. Um, a few things on that. Um... So first thing that came to me was you were making the point about um, the difference between primary and secondary school. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that context, particularly in relation to primary school. You see, the idea that this this proactive approach is more effective than people think it is, particularly when you get children younger, is children are probably given a phone in maybe fifth or sixth class. I know it's becoming more common that it's less than that, but I'd, I'd like to hope it's fifth or sixth class. When they get that phone, there's utter excitement. Of course there is. They, that phone gives them increased independence straight away, which they arguably shouldn't have, but they are starting adolescence, so they, they're going to get increased independence. But by creating those habits, the parents and the teachers, by emphasizing these rules again and again and again, you're unconsciously creating a habit mm. that's so much so that as children as those children get older the rules that they've been applying uh consciously start to become unconscious and they start to put away their phone more for example or start start being on it um less the extracurricular activities that they were doing because they're on their phone less then are more likely to be carried over after that transition into secondary school so they're more likely to uh, have other things to do rather than being on their phone or technology all day okay so that's the first thing it's very very important secondary school is difficult i agree but definitely primary school because what you're doing there is you're building habits the next thing i want to say is it should never ever be all on the parents and the teachers 100 percent, i agree i do think there should be professionals coming in but that's uh, easier said than done hmm. um another important tip for teachers that are forced that they can't get the experts to come in um i would say that these teachers basically the approach is never, ever, it's the same with sex education. You don't go in and tell them this could happen, that you could be, um, like, for example, you could be attacked by a sexual predator online, you could be approached, you could be groomed. That's not going to stop teens from doing it. That that doesn't work. What you want to teach them is basically make them aware of the whole situation so that they can think about it themselves. That's always the better approach. Make them aware of the dangers but also don't tell them you can't do this or you can't do that. That's not the correct approach. Next thing then is um, it's never, ever fully on the parent and the teacher in relation to when I'm talking about this. I think this is a micro step, but the far bigger involvement should be 
the social media companies and the government. Mm. Now, this is probably me going into um, <laughs> fantasy land. But in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, I personally don't think social media should be allowed for children under the age of 15. Um, or, or, you're making a funny face at me there. <laughs> it's like, okay. Or, you monopolize a social media platform specifically for that age range of under 15. You're probably wondering, why am I picking 15? Yes, it is arbitrary, but the reason why I'm picking 15 is after the age of 15, children start being able to start thinking for themselves, start being more independent. So you can kind of respect that when they're exposed to something, they know how to respond to it better. But under the age of 15, I, I don't think they have that ability. And of course, age is not the only way to measure that, but it is the most obvious um indicator I like we that. have i like that one i do like the idea of the social media platform for kids under a certain age for one because it allows you to as you said drip feed their exposure to this world that allows them to build up an understanding of how to engage in that world so that when they get to a certain age they're prepared for it and when it's just free for all which is what social media kind of is um and also, if all their peers on it, they're not going to go anywhere else. Like, why, when I was a kid, was it Bebo? And that was where you went. Or MSN was the big one when I, when I started. And then everyone moves to Facebook. You stop using Bebo. Why do you stop using Bebo? Because your friends go somewhere else. At, at the end of the day, okay, yes, people want to build a following. But they're only going to go on the platforms that their friends are on. Why am I not using Snapchat today as much as my younger brother? Yeah. Because I probably talk to my friends more on WhatsApp and Instagram, say. My brother is on Snapchat all the time because that's where his friends are. I mean, th at the end of the day, kids will move to where their peers spend most of their time. Exactly. You're only trying to impress your peers. Because um, I know, obviously, after about the age of 12 or 13, children start developing social status. So they start caring about what other children think of them. But mm -hmm. they don't care about what some boy in Australia thinks of them, I'd like to imagine. Yeah. Um, so it should only be their social circle. Um, yeah. it shouldn't have to be any anybody else and like they're like in the real world they're never going to meet anybody outside of their social circle like for example whoever they play sport with and whoever they go to school with like um like so what what's the point mm. of, and i think uh, 14 and 15 kids are still malleable enough that they could come to terms with only being you know they're still a little bit you know wide-eyed to the world you know, once you probably get to about 16 17 18 you start to be exposed more to the outer world outside yeah. of your friend group in school um you know which is what you think your world is for the first few years of secondary school and you start to have you know opinions on things and start to question how things are so yeah. it's probably more likely that you wouldn't satisfied with being on a platform away from everyone else also your social circle gets bigger so you yeah. go to summer camps you go to uh, you start working you might go to college or you might get a um like different jobs and mm. so your social circle expands and that's a very exciting period for uh, late adolescents because then they realize that I can start choosing who I'm friends with more mm. so than who you're restricted to. And I know that period, obviously, before that is difficult, but it's part of the difficulty of growing up. You're trying to find your identity within that. But what, like, what's the difference? So I understand you're, okay, now you have a platform that's restricted to, you know, that's for kids from 15 and below, but what then, how does that act differently to Facebook? I understand, okay, that it probably there's not a commercial model to it. There's no marketing ads and things like that. It's still going to be, a, kids are still going to want to be sharing photos and videos of their lives and things like that. So where are the restrictions on that that are different to your standard? What would be the priority if you were to build it today to avoid? But see, this is the problem. Technology is changing so fast that you can't keep up with restrictions. That's the problem. Like, par like the social media companies can't even keep up with them. So definitely the parents can't. Like, think about how much Facebook has changed in the last five years even. Mm. But going back to what's wrong with Facebook, like, you can, you can share your photos on your wall. Do you know, I don't understand why you need Instagram to do that. Um or because again it this issue of it goes back to the whole idea of the possibility of fame is my one maybe reasoning behind why children would want to go on um mm. and it's cool but if it wasn't there then it couldn't be cool yeah yeah <laughs> and i think um you know i think there's always the 
Yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, I do like the idea of having, you know, a platform that kids kind of almost graduate out of once they reach 15 or 16. It's just, you know, is it just a case that everyone under the age of 15 can go on to it and use it? Or is it that there are certain different privacy restrictions on that that other people can't use? But yeah. I think even... That's that's actually a better point. That's a more realistic perspective that there are certain privacy and restrictions that are set depending on your age. But then okay. you have the problem again that people are still lying about their age. So, so we have to have better criteria around managing. Better criteria, but also um, this sounds extreme, but I think the best way to tackle this and to make parents more um, concerned about their child's use of technology, social media, is there should be spot checks and fines. Um, mm, yeah. And I think I know, you know, I know it kind of is, a, you know, it kind of is a moot question, a moot statement by the social media company to say, oh, but there's so many um, accounts being set up daily that we can't keep up. We can't, you know, check, double check them. And I go, yeah, but if to set up account, you just made more steps involved. So you said you have to send a form of ID. You have to have some sort of proof slows the number of pass number of accounts being set up. If there's that, if that's the, the reason there's so many accounts being set up is because they can be set up like for in two seconds without any proof of anything. That's why there's so many. So to turn around and say, oh, we can't manage it is probably a moot point because if you made it more restrictive, you know, one person wouldn't be making a hundred accounts. So you're not dealing with a hundred accounts, you're dealing with one. And that that's the biggest thing. Yeah. Hmm. But I like it. Maybe, look, let's take this offline. We'll create Motus Social and it'll be like where kids can go on and use, you know, watch this space. They think it's too uncool, though. They do. That's the problem. We're not cool enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so the final things I just want to mention, one topic I do want to bring up in relation to technology and children, and this is often something that is neglected and people don't think about, is we're also now in an era where you have the issue that parents are having newborns and we're obviously going to talk more about this. We have planned to do a season on developmental psychology, like like newborns um, and very young children. But the most important thing about that age range is attention. That's what children need attention from the caregivers. That's so, so important. But the problem you have today is you have, let's say, a parent who is breastfeeding. And while they should be making eye contact with their child, smiling, uh, being attentive to them, they have their phone in their other hand. And this is something that's not really discussed, but it's re very, very important that how much parents use technology also plays a big role on child mental health. Mm. So um, what parents need to get better at is basically being fully attentive to their child. And maybe when their child's gone to bed, then you can take out the phone, you can go on social media, but it's not one or the other. Um have is that something maybe you've thought over i haven't no um yeah i don't know i haven't really thought about it you've surely seen really... it though you've seen parents with their child young child and they're on their phone as in yeah yeah no i have seen it it's one of the things i find most uncomfortable is that is that you know is is that is that what that's the way the way that's become just commonplace now mm. um it is it, like the, you know, the idea of, you know, the idea of parenting has changed so much even with technology that, it, you know, I think that's probably one of the things I find most comfortable. You see a lot like airports or just it, in those kind of environments where you see parents with their with their young kids. It's uh, and then it goes the other way around then that's so parents are giving chill like I don't know. Have you seen a child now being able to use tablets and phones? It's terrifying. But um, yeah, you see you see when kids start to get rowdy they just slop an aisled ipad in front of them and go yeah. keep you occupied and it, it you know it's kind of it, you know it's it's a moment that would traditionally be okay the parent okay as uncomfortable and difficult it is if it's a busy place a shopping center or a airport where the kid's screaming or is is, is angry the parent would have to engage the kid and calm them down but that is a relationship building moment that should be yeah. reserved for a parent and child it's not only relationship building, but the other issue here is basically it's based on this belief that if a child is busy or occupied, then they're developing. But research is showing that basically when children under the age of two or three are engaging with a screen, it's not the equivalent to exploring their actual environment. Mm. There's actually a big, big difference. 
and this is one piece of research that um, has been done well that we know this now definitely that showing children screens is not the equivalent because loads of people thought that this was a massive money maker that they could basically sell like interactive learning like apps like, and all this yes stuff for exactly kids, yeah. but that definitely doesn't work it's not the equivalent to actual because a natural two-year-old wants to explore their environment they'll pick stick stuff up they'll put it in their mouth they'll do all these types of stuff and they're mm. learning rapidly their brain is rapidly developing when they're doing this but when they're watching a screen maybe watching a child do the exact same thing as them it's not the equivalent they need and to also it's teaching the kid that all these experiences are within a nine inch screen exactly and then yeah. they get to a certain age where they actually fall over or they actually taste something they don't like or they actually get a cut on something or all these different things or they reach out and hold on to something and they feel the texture or something they figure out that oh wow there's th these experiences exist in the real world it's not just something you look at and i think yeah. you know you're basically taking as you said all these stimulus and turning them, taking them away from all the different senses and putting them into one's two senses, hearing and seeing. You don't get to touch, you don't get to feel, you don't get to do all these other, yeah. you know, forms of development that kids are missing out on. Exactly. Um, and one way they've proven that it's not as good for development is there's this concept. It's from the developmental psychologist, uh, John Piaget, who'd be one of the top in his field. Um is object permanence so this object permanence is basically this understanding that an object still exists after it disappears okay so for example if i have let's say a toy and then i put it away into a shelf um that you can't see anymore it still exists like but if children are only learning through um screens they don't develop this ability of object permanence so they think when something's gone off the screen it's gone that it's um so this isn't learned and that's oh. um and this is that's a weird con like i mean obviously you know it actually makes sense but i'm like that's a really weird thing to identify as an issue this is much bigger role in development than you think it does because you need to realize that this then applies to people that it helps you develop empathy when you can understand um something that's not in your um visual Field, environment yeah okay yes that it still exists so p other people are thinking and feeling different emotions to you in different situations and that's other the people, foundation yeah okay there's a there's lots of things going on outside of your frame of reference yes in, in immediate frame of reference okay. exactly and i'm not saying they don't develop it at all of course they do but that development is delayed and delayed mm. development can have a big big role to the child's future so this is the big, big effect. They decided that, that kind of statement would scare the bejesus out of parents. Yeah, but so I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to. Uh, well, actually, no, I am trying to scare parents. Yeah, you are. Well, I mean, that's what you're trying <laughs> um, to say. Yeah. Ba basically, the, the best advice I can give is um, avoid the tablets. Um, yes, it's good to pacify a child, but it's not good for their development. So what's more important is face-to-face -face interaction and like connecting with your child yeah. properly. Not through a screen. Yeah. And I know that's difficult. That goes without and in saying. And we're not saying, you know, maybe in certain circumstances, you know, you might be busy airport trying to check in or do something. There's, there's all, there is a time and a place for just yeah. giving them something to take their mind off it for a couple of minutes to kind of be able to do something. You know, you can't be 24 by 7 holding the baby and, you know, entertaining the child. But what we're saying is don't become victim to the screen or the tablet becomes a robotic parent that can just fulfill a lot of those experiences that you would otherwise be forced, or not forced, but you otherwise would do with your child. I think, I think that's the biggest thing. And, um, you know, I don't think, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think any parent would, if you ask them up front, do they think that sticking a tablet in front of the kid is a good thing? I don't think any parent would say that, but I think maybe understanding the negatives of too much of it, um, is probably more something that parents aren't as aware of. Mm, yeah. Um, and yeah, other than that, um, like in relation to advice to parents, because I know we're obviously having a good conversation here, but I do want it to be beneficial to parents, teachers listening. Of course. Um, like the the other thing, we we will have more tips for parents, but the other, the one big big thing that I'll also point out is, as I've highlighted already, there's a big big difference between cyber world and actual world. Mm. So when you're talking to your child as they grow older and obviously they will be exposed to social media and the cyber world at some stage when you ask them how their day is make sure you're constantly differentiating between the cyber world and the actual world 
So if you ask them how their day was and they go on about some TikTok dance they've seen or what happened on Call of Duty, how many people they killed, you acknowledge it, say, OK, that's great. And what about the actual world? Make sure you're constantly differentiating that because when you differentiate it, when you're having a conversation with the child, you're helping them differentiate it. That, OK, um, it's OK that I enjoy myself in this uh, cyber world, but there is a difference between that cyber world and the actual world. Mm. And then on that topic, you're highlighting Again, not in an aggressive manner that you can't do this, but you're highlighting basically that um, there is dangers in the actual world, but also there are dangers in the cyber world. And making them yeah. aware of that as well, that I think is really, really important. Um, and yeah, I think that's essentially it. Yeah. Um, we're planning on doing another one aren't we on we're going to be discussing influencers um and also online dating romance that type of stuff yeah um more so of course it'll be closely attached to this and hopefully we'll have um some more advice basically about how to have these conversations with your children um anything else to add no i think um i think you summed it up nicely i think what we're trying to say, and you know, sometimes when you listen to this, you might think, oh, we're being all anti, anti-technology, anti-social media, which we're not because we benefit from it a lot. But I think um, what we understand is that it's just, as you said, putting a lens on it. So we're more aware of the pitfalls of overexposure to technology from a young age. And also um, at the root to all of this, and I mean, it's probably the root to everything we talk about and we probably repeat it all the time, but education, education, education. We have to try and maintain pace with the change in our world um, with the education we're providing to our kids because if we continue to, you know, say the tried and tested method and provide the same level of education that has existed for 10 or 15 years, it's already outdated. It's not representative of the world those kids are going to grow up in. And it's even as parents and teachers and adults ourselves you know, we are very much aware of the lack of knowledge we have of how these social media platforms really work and how these technology platforms really work. And we're not fully aware of the dangers or the things to be aware of. So I think, um, it, as you said, this is hopefully um, an opportunity or this discussion gives you a little bit more context um, to what to be aware of and what to take um, into consideration as a parent when you're looking at your kids growing up and also yourself when you're engaging with technology. But um, I think... You know, as you said, for now, um, we'll close it off there. Again, we appreciate everyone listening. Um, we appreciate everyone's kind of support. Um, we've said it before, to find out more about what we do at Modus, follow us. I know it's technology on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, and this podcast itself is on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Please share it with your friends. Leave a review if you like. It always helps us kind of get further exposure and more people learn. And also, if you want to challenge anything that we've said or want to continue the discussion, uh, tweet us as well. Yes, do. Give us, you know, give us your feedback because, again, this is us kind of giving our side of the story, but there's always other people's opinions that we're very interested in hearing. So, as always, we appreciate your support. Like, share to all your friends, and we'll be back again next time with another conversation around this whole technology field and mental health. But um, until next time, mind yourselves. Thank you.